Kumar on the panel, RNZ National, Wallace Chapman with you. Always great to be with now. I just want to start by uh, acknowledging my colleague Jesse Mulligan who sits alongside me at work and who's show The Project uh, alongside Kanua Lloyd and Jeremy Corbett. Uh, they're also co-hosts. Set to be axed, uh, has held the 7pm slots since 2017. So uh, pretty tough news for the 40-odd affected staff. Um, uh, you know, many people listening, uh, Simon, will, uh, you know, no doubt have gone through these types of things before. Hard for anyone, but uh, just uh, acknowledging this. Uh. Yeah, and so hard for the people involved and, you know, sending all our best to all the great people at the project. It's been such a good place for, you know, bringing some real soul to that, that station. And it has been their flagship and it's not their fault, you know, like it's part of their financial situation and the work they've done has been um you know, a real highlight of that station. So really feeling for them. I agree too, because I think it's always sad to lose an avenue to tell New Zealand stories and to find New Zealand talent. You know, think of all the comedians that have had a crack on that show over the years that would not have got onto primetime TV otherwise, and they go on to good things. Absolutely. It's always sad. Nine past four. Now, this uh, report from uh, Phil Pennington from RNZ. Police use of automated number plate recognition cameras is being challenged with at least two cases in the courts. The cameras are used by police in a contract with an Auckland company, Aura, and the data collected by the number plate technology can be accessed by 6,000 staff for non-routine searches, like finding the owner of a car in a supermarket car park as a one-off. Is this an increasing level of state surveillance or a great tool in preventing crime? Back in April, the police said that ANPR is a, quote, effective tool to support police in preventing and investigating crime in our communities and is regularly used to assist with serious investigations uh, like homicides, assaults and aggravated robberies. So what does the Criminal Bar Association think about this? Let's find out. With us is Chris Wilkinson-Smith, the president of the Criminal Bar Association. Chris, kia ora. Yes, kia ora. Afternoon, Wallace, and to your panel. Yeah, now what is the key issue here as uh, you see it, Chris? Well, I think uh, the way you introduced it was, was very good because we need to ask that question and have the conversation. Um, yes, we want to protect against crime, detect it, and if necessary, uh, if, it, uh, if it's committed, prosecute it. But at what cost to the level of privacy that we expect to enjoy um, in a democratic and relatively safe country? And that is the question that you say, and the Criminal Bar Association say, that issue of to what level of surveillance we must accept is actually not being discussed enough. Yeah, and it's not really what we accept because I don't actually think it's for the police to make that decision. They are the people tasked with undertaking that work, but as a country, we need to decide what we think is a acceptable level of surveillance and then direct the police to, um, uh, to reflect what we think is a society. They, by all accounts, tapping into the surveillance system around about you know, 500 times a day. Um, what's wrong with it? What's the issue? Well, I, I think it's, it's concerning. It's sort of a, a technology that's been cobbled together by uh, largely private providers, but then it's been realised that if you connect all the surveillance cameras across the country, private ones run by regional councils and some by the police, you can create a massive database 
of photos and videos of people, uh, just normal uh, members of the public, going about their daily lives uh, on a 60-day cycle. So it's not something that we'd normally expect uh, for our movements to be logged and, and actually video recorded on that scale. Mm. Well, let's bring our panel. Linda, what's your take on this? Oh, I fully agree, and I'm going to give you a weird personal anecdote here about this. So I, um, I happened to drive into a supermarket, a shopping mall car park recently <clears throat> with a child in my car who was not my own, who had been caught shoplifting. And I drove into the car park and I went into a shop and they came running in and bailed me up and said to me, your daughter's been shoplifting. I said, I don't even have a daughter. And meanwhile, they were outside taking photos of my car and that, which they logged, and I said, well, hang on a second, I've done nothing wrong here. But this is the thing, like, you would not think if you're going to a shopping mall that they've got such good facial recognition software that they can pick up the people coming in in cars and then come and have a go at you. That's and extraordinary. It, and, when, when, did that, when did that happen? That happened this year. I was furious, as you imagine, as you can imagine. But also then they logged my uh, license plate number. So, like, if I go to Kmart, it's going to be a problem for me. So, yeah, so that's, I think, uh, people think, oh, this could never happen to me. This is like, you know, secret society. This is happening all the time. And it's happened in to you. In every shopping Chris, mall, they're taking photos of you. what do you make of that? Yes, it is concerning because I think people thought uh, number plate recognition just took a very small shot just of your number plate. In fact, it takes a, a large and relatively high-resolution picture so you can recognise people, they can recognise your children. Um, it's much more intrusive than the name would suggest. Well, I never... Yeah, isn't that wild? And it does speak to how this piece or this kind of, you know, technology came about, which was it did come about to try and stop shoplifting because the problem that it was solving was that the individual thefts are so small that it doesn't meet that threshold for the police to take it seriously. And it was only by bringing in this kind of recognition software that they were able to link up enough of these people, bust these professional organised groups doing it and lift their, the severity of it up to a level that you know the police could work with and so it, it was cobbled together in order to solve that problem so it's not kind of without context um, but that is you know a really scary especially when you don't understand as consumers that you're part of now you know you're associated with <laughs> <laughs> But I think more, more than that too like I think people would think twice about where you shopped if there were big signs up saying if you enter this car park we're going to photograph you, the people in your car and your licence plate and if anything ever happens we're going to come and harass you in a shop um, Someone says I have a customer in one of Auckland's leafy suburbs who has a number plate camera mounted on his fence monitoring traffic on his street. This is seen as a public service by the neighbourhood and made use of when there is a burglary in the neighbourhood. Is this also a breach of privacy? That's an interesting uh, question from our uh, Listeners, Chris? It's not, on a one-off basis, it's not uh, an intrusion privacy to, to take a photo or a video of people out in public. And, of course, the paparazzi know all about those sort of rules about what what lines to cross. But it's the, it's the accumulation of all that information over a long period of time, which I think at some point becomes intrusive. 
Yeah, there's something about the context of this which is is a really tricky one, right, as well, because it has been put together because of a lot of people who were taking advantage of um, <laughs> the lack of oversight. Uh, and now it's being used for all kinds of other things. I was recently reading um, the story of, like, killing Pablo, the, the story of, like, tracking down Pablo Escobar, and a real theme through it was that a lot of these people who were doing, you know, the most awful things would use uh, legal channels to be very careful about their rights. Uh, and, you know, get all kinds of things dismissed on technicalities while at the same time um, be, be, being absolutely flagrant in other ways. And I'll be really interested to see what the context of this is yeah, because if right. it is a, a true, um, oh, we're very worried about civil liberties, that's great. But if it is actually, I don't know, drug money trying well, to get out of being in trouble, uh, it, it, it kind of stinks. One thing I would say is that it can be used for good, but most of these things can be used for good. So, for example, if someone's having a mental health crisis and you have their licence plate number, you can can phone the police and they can find that car if it's gone through. And there are a lot of these cameras. That's well, what that's, we don't realise. I mean, that's just that's just yeah. another aspect of it, isn't it, uh, Chris? Yeah, and definitely. I mean, if you have proper protocols around, you know, inevitably that would be uh, would be a, a, an exception that would be allowed, and, and and that's what happens now, anyway. Yeah, very good. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, Chris Wilkins there. Chris Wilkinson Smith, president of the Criminal Bar Association. Um, surveillance, great. Bring it on. Picks up bad folks, uh, including you, Linda. That, that's, that, you must have been quite shocked. To, uh... I, was, I was gobsmacked and also quite stroppy. I caused a huge scene. Because I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're not going to come up and bail me up in a shop. Well, I was returning a pair of shoes, for goodness sake. So you I hardly look like a criminal, so do you're, I? So theoretically, your number plate now... My number plate is be, logged re- in Red flagged. Yep. Yeah, that'll be fun for me next time I need to go to Kmart. <laughs> 17 past four, the panel, RNZ National. We have Simon Pound and Linda Hellenin. Well, what price do you put on heritage? This has been a big issue, a very big issue in the capital city as the council voted to fund a cost increase of up to $147 million for the Wellington Town Hall strengthening project. It's a huge budget blowout with a new potential cost now of, get this, $329 million. It raises the issue of whether the value we put on heritage is to be frank with the cost. The heritage listed building has been closed to the public for the past decade for quake strengthening. This is Wellington City Councillor Nico Wienera speaking to Morning Report. In the way it was presented to us, there was no reasonable alternative. We could pay somewhere in the ballpark of $204 million to mothball the project and not get a world-class performance venue, not get those civic functions back and miss out on the NZO in the future, NZO rather, or we could pay somewhere in the vicinity of 265 to finish the job, get the thing done and have that venue back for Wellingtonians. Now, the foundation stone for the town hall was laid in 1901 by who would be later King George V. Maintenance has long been an issue. In a 1973 concert with Kenny Rogers, their sound levels caused dust to begin to drift over the stage. Wellingtonians, I want to ask you, is the money worth it? Love it or leave it? With us is Dr. Eric Crampton from the uh, New Zealand uh, Initiative. Uh, Now, they did some research on just this topic sometime back with Deloitte's. He might have a solution. Uh, Eric, kia ora. Good afternoon. How do you see this issue? $329 million eye-watering. 
Well, it's especially eye-watering when we remember that in 2013, when they were starting this out, it was only supposed to have been $43 million. And when the costs then blew out to $60 million, Ian Castles was warning that it was a white elephant and that it wasn't worth $60 million. Uh, now we're spending about five times that much. So that's a bit of a risk. I worry more that we've got really poor processes around deciding these things. You might suspect that if everyone had known up front that it could go up to $330 million, there would have yeah. been an early decision to de- demolish it instead. But we've structured things that that's effectively impossible. By the time council figured out just how big the cost was going to be, the regulatory processes that they would have to face, because it's a listed building, would 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 make it effectively impossible. It's likely that the judges would knock it back or they would at least have years and years of court cases on it. Really, council needs to have an option to pull buildings simply out of the district plan. So while Heritage New Zealand will often put buildings on its own heritage register, the main protections are when the building is listed on a council's district plan. Getting a building off of council's district plan, once you've realized that you've got a substantial problem, is really hard because ah. that can be tied up in the courts for years. Well, the uh, the issue is just the cost, isn't it? I mean, well, up yeah. to three hundred twenty million, as you said, forty three million dollars first. But let me ask you this, Eric: One heritage consultant said New Zealanders just don't value heritage. That we are a nation of cultural philistines when it comes to our building legacy. In a way that you'd never hear this conversation in the likes of Italy. Are you in that category, Eric? Well, I think heritage does have some value, and I think that the public should be prepared to pay for it um, as explicit support rather than as regulatory encumbrance. So in the town hall case, it's falling on ratepayers because council owns the building. But other buildings, like the Tumath one that was torched or suspiciously mm. burned down uh, a couple of weekends ago, I was down on Cuba Street, and there's all the fire trucks, and oh yeah, it's yeah. that one. We were kind of expecting that. Um, in those cases, it's a private owner that's stuck with the regulatory cost, and there's really no good way out of it. Uh, nobody really weighs up the costs and the benefits of heritage when they're setting these uh, restrictions on it. We're trying to achieve a public purpose of providing this public amenity, this yeah. better heritage provision, through a regulatory encumbrance that just makes heritage buildings really difficult to own and maintain and operate. Indeed. Hey, Eric, stay there because oh, I want to bring on the panel and then, or, or, then they can, you can respond to them. Um, what do you think? Oh, hand on heart, love it or leave it? The Wellington Town Hall. Simon, you first. I just don't, don't know it well enough to have a relationship oh, with them. Oh, come on. You know the building. I don't, don't, I don't. You know, I think for Wellingtonians, though, they're looking at, I don't know, $500 a person on their rates bill for it. More than that. Maybe they could take a leap out, you know, a leaf out of what Italy does and Go like the Colosseum. Let it be ruins. People could visit it. This was our wonderful amphitheatre where we had Kenny Rogers. <laughs> like a tourist attraction. All right, that's your... Okay, Linda. I think any, any building that can't stand up to Kenny Rogers needs to come down. I mean, I, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, just put up a hologram. Yeah. Nobody would know any different... Aren't they already working on the library? So I mean, you're, a, you're a cultural Philistine. Well, either that or have everyone needs this, to stand back and hope for an earthquake. Have you seen this beautiful building? Yeah, but it's only 120 years old. Like, that isn't really heritage in the yeah, world scheme you... of things. I mean, it might be here. Okay. But if it fell down, everyone would go, oh, that's sad. But no one would care. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I want to bring hard, Wellingtonians on this wall. Eric, you're in Wellington. Um, how do you respond to both? 
Well, I'm worried that the pipes are going to collapse, that we're not going to have water this summer, and somehow council finds itself in a spot that they can't avoid spending another hundred and some million dollars on the pipes, or sorry, on the building rather than on the pipes. It ran mm. some basic numbers on it. It's $1,500 for each of the 216,000 people in Wellington, right? So that's a fair bit. Uh, if, mm. you, if the thing were to pay its own way, you'd have to have a, a sellout concert at the town hall uh, 10 times per week for the next 30 <laughs> years. And each of those tickets for a sellout show would have to have a $20 surcharge to cover the cost of the strengthening. That'd be in addition to the regular ticket cost to cover the cost of running the venue. It seems implausible that these uh, works are cost effective, and especially in a city that's going to bankrupt itself trying to pay for the pipes. The, the St. James, which has recently been done up, is beautiful, you know, also owned by the council. Like, uh, it, it, is, it, is tr- it is a really reasonable question to go at what price? At what price? Heritage. And yeah. is 320 miles? What if? What if that blows out yet again? Uh, Dr. Crampton, kia ora. Nice to have you on the programme. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's uh, Eric Crampton from the New Zealand Initiative. Now, they did some research about this heritage issue. It's a real conundrum, isn't it, for councils? It's it's a real rock and a hard place. That is a massive amount of money when, as Eric Crampton said, what about the pipes? Yeah, we had a um, person visit from Slovenia and she went up north and saw our oldest building and she was like, <laughs> they're oldest buildings from 1880 or something. Our bathroom at home is from 1750. <laughs> you know, I do think that, like, some of this heritage is I not all. I, 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 so I, I don't agree with that. I don't, Why does it I, cost so much, I though? think that, that that cultural relativity is different. It's important to us. But it's a European important. cultural relativity, uh, too. We need yeah. to keep that in mind. I know that makes me Good, sound terribly woke, point. but it's true, right? It's right. actually... Um, conversation about the Wellington Town Hall is missing the point. It's not that it's heritage. It's that it's acoustically significant. New Zealand has attracted international recording contracts principally because the acoustics available in that building. Yes, we talked about that on the panel when that first, uh, but still, $300 million. And someone says, uh, uh, importantly, at Wallace, um, it wasn't dust. Someone sabotaged the Kenny Rogers uh, concert with uh, flour and eggs. Uh, 26 past four, your school trip. Save our school trip, said Adrian Charles on The Guardian. And even if they don't teach you much, they leave such happy memories. And it wasn't so much the trip to an Elizabethan manor that got us excited. It was just being outside the school, together with teachers on a school day. And apparently schools are under the pump in the UK and are doing school trips less and less. With us to discuss her school trip is Alice. Hello, Alice. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Oh, it's lovely to have you on the programme. Now, what was your? tell us about your school trip in rural Taranaki in the 1970s. Oh, well, uneventful, really, for a rural school trip um, in Taranaki. It was um, at my primary school, and we went to the local chook farm. And we watched um, how um, the local farmer um, would slaughter his chooks. He was uh, the... So we all stood around in the slaughter room, or what we called as as, um, the killing machine, and it was described to us that they would grab the chicken, turn the chicken upside down, and put its head through a cone-shaped holder within this circular machine, and then the machine would rotate round and chop the chicken's heads off. 
So we all, that was, you know, we were all rural kids, so that didn't actually phase us at all. We went back to camp for the night after dinner, um, had um, story time that we had to write a story about our day and what was the best thing out of our day. I still have my story about the chook at chooks in the killing machine, and I have a great diagram. Alice. Alice, can I say that rings so true for me because I went to a rural school and they took us to an abattoir on a school trip and I'll never forget the pigs screamed. I I did become vegetarian. Not instantly. I ate a bit more bacon. Alice, it's amazing how a school trip can really stick with you unlike anything else in um, your memory. Oh, definitely, yes. Thank you for the memory. That was that's wonderful. So, um, not uneventful from my years, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Simon? Mine was Mataki um, uh, in Nelson College, mid eighties, learning how to shoot semi-automatics. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yeah, at school camp. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah, and learning how to put together a gun. It was something I will never ever forget. And learning how heavy a self-loading rifle is. And the sergeant major saying, Chapman, put the butt of the rifle against your shoulder else you get a bruise. <laughs> we had some quite budget trips. I remember going on one to Port Waikato. And um, my enduring memory of that is that my friends, Rebecca and Lorraine, dropped the torch down the long drop. And then I'm pretty sure it was a chap called Garrick Lucas who went down in a gesture of love and got it out. It may not have been him. I hope he's not listening. What was yours? Yeah, I, I, um, very much those memories of going to the places with the long drops and and and, and with the um, big uh, troughs for rinsing out your dishes <laughs> and putting your your plate in and it coming out kind of worse than it went in. And the vats of poached eggs, like they'd put like a hundred eggs into a giant pot, and then you just keep scooping out these rubbery things for breakfast. Oh my goodness me, there, Good is, there, there are so many more. Here we go. We uh, A memorable school trip, uh, primary school, going to Todd Motors assembly plant in Patoni. At the end, the guide gave us all a Todd Motors button and said that if we bought it back when we were 21, <laughs> we would get a new car. <laughs> um, so how carefully I kept the cheap tin button for many years <laughs> Until not long before that fateful day, the factory closed down. Gutted. No long road trips with my mates, uh, says Madeline. So, Hard yeah. to stay in business giving away yeah. all those cars. <laughs> Another one here. It is just incredible to me how mercenary your panel is today. We have a sad history of destroying our heritage, and this is just not intended as a concert venue. Please give our accurate information. So there you go. They can just pay for it. Yeah. If you if you think that's the case, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, another one here, uh, um, Linda says, I don't look like a criminal. What on earth does a criminal look like? Not like me, I think. <laughs> Fair question. That's true, but that's like... a good question. That is a good question, but I'm pretty sure that like a middle-aged mum from a farm in the Wops is not that person. <laughs> well, who knows?